How's everybody today? So Ryan puts my podium up in last service and this service. He tilts it a little bit and I found out that I'm evidently OCD because I don't like that. He's doing it on purpose. <laughs> All right, well this morning we are gonna actually go through a section of scripture together. Um, we're actually gonna read uh, a whole Psalm, Psalm 84, and just walk through it. But before we kind of get into the Psalm, it's really important, I believe, to give us some backstory um, to help us understand some of the context. So um, we're gonna do two things. We're gonna talk about um, the history of who wrote it briefly and the timing of when it was written before we actually jump into it. So the, interestingly enough, this Psalm is written um, by a group called the Sons of Korah. And if you remember, or maybe you've never read this story, it's pretty intense. If you've never read it, check it out. It's like Exodus 15, I think, in Numbers 16. There's two different places. Basically, um, Moses freed the Hebrew people from Egypt, and now they're kind of wandering in the wilderness. And there was a, after they went to Mount Sinai and met with God, there was a point where this guy named Korah, who happened to be Moses' first cousin, um, gathered another couple guys with him, and they decided to say that, Moses, how do we know that you are the appointed leader for all of us? Why, why would God want you to be leader any more than me? I don't really think you're a leader. And these three people, Korah, his two friends, and they gathered 250 people to rebel against Moses together. And it's the craziest story ever. Um, the Lord actually tells Moses, tell the people of Israel, get away from him. Don't even touch him. And before all of the Israelite people, the earth opens up, swallows the three leader, leaders, and then closes again right on top of them and eats them alive, which is radically crazy. You might think that's a fable. I believe the Bible is true, um, which means people literally saw the earth open up, eat these three people, and then it was just crazy. And then it says the fire of the Lord went out and consumed all 250 of the, the rebels. And guess what the Israelites did after that? They said, Moses, you're our leader. <laughs> we get it. Um, but this psalm we're going to read is written by a group called the Sons of Korah. Korah led that rebellion. And what's interesting is um, the Sons of Korah, this group of people who worked in and around um, the tabernacle and the things of God, um, they must have had family stories, right? Like if that happened in your family, your grandfather was eaten up by the by an earthquake, I bet there'd be a family story involved with that. I bet there'd be some that passed down, right? So when, when Korah got eaten up, um, that was about five, maybe 600 years before our psalm takes place. So there's some generations that have heard this story. And honestly, it could probably go either way. If, you're, if, if their family is anything like my family and a lot of ours, you know, maybe an option would have been that they're just bitter at God for doing that. Why'd you kill great grandpa Korah? Uh, and, you know, that was unjust, no way. And, but what we, don't, we don't see that at all. We see from the sons of Korah a great appreciation for the Lord and mercy. They, they recognize the hand of God as being merciful to them because the scripture says in the Old Testament that God is a God who visits the iniquity of the parents on the third and fourth generation. In other words, you ain't gonna get away from nothing. But what God did, and, and it says, is that the sons of Korah didn't die. Korah did, he died for his own sins, but his sons were okay, and they ended up growing up to serve the Lord in, in the duties around the tabernacle. And so there's, there's actually multiple scriptures the sons of Korah wrote, and I just want to read you a few that you might remember. 
Psalm 42, where it says, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul longs after you. That's the sons of Korah. They're, 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 they're actually hungering for the things of God. Uh, Psalm 46 says, God is our strength and an ever-present help in trouble. That's, that's the sons of Korah. In Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So that's a really interesting context, just to be aware of that. Who wrote this psalm are a group of people who um, their family had a little bit of a checkered past with the Lord. And yet they, they were great psalmists, great songwriters that worshiped the Lord and worked around the temple and the tabernacle, the tabernacle rather, of God. So, so that's good to know. You can check out those stories if you want in, in, in Numbers chapter 16, I think. And then the timing, this, this was written in the 6th century B.C. Let me make sure I get that correct. Which means it was from like 600 B.C., somewhere between 600 B.C. and 501 B.C., which you're like, whatever, Tom, that doesn't make any difference. What was interesting is that's the same time period of what's called the Babylonian captivity. So the, the great people of Babylon came and they besieged the city of Jerusalem in the northern kingdom of Israel on a couple of occasions and ended up taking the people of Israel back with them. They came back and did the same thing to the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is a time of great tumult, chaos, that the things of the Lord were greatly disrupted because the people of God are now captives of the Babylons, uh, Babylonians. So it's good to know that. Now, the, the people, the, the, the sons of Korah, what they did um, in writing this psalm, it's possible it was written before the Babylonian captivity. But it's also extremely possible it happened during the captivity or after. Which as we get walked down through the psalm, you're going to recognize, okay, there's some language that makes sense about why that might have happened after um, this great siege of Jerusalem um, and things were really disrupted. So that's the backstory. Everybody kind of with me so far? I know it's kind of a lot for a Sunday morning, but it's 10.15. We've had our coffee. So why don't you stand with me? And we're going to read together um, Psalm 84. It's, it says, A Psalm of the Sons of Korah. <clears throat> How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Then there's this word, Selah, which honestly we don't, I don't think really know what that means. Some think it means like pause or reflect. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. And then Selah again. Verse 9, O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. And I pray that you help me to um, minister it, help us to receive from it today all that you would have in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. We had, um, when I was in 
college, I remember in my sociology class, they, they were talking about how people assimilated into the American culture, and there were actually two groups of people that um, kind of didn't, and I, I probably have one of them wrong, but one of them is um, the Amish. The Amish have their own, really, culture and own society to some degree, and this is the one I probably have wrong, I don't know if the name of it's correctly, but it might be like the Hasidic Jews. Um, they actually have their own culture, they have their own uh, way of life within our country, and, um, the, but how they succeed at keeping that is different. The, the Amish actually, um, I was, at least this is from the, my sociology teacher, so I could be wrong, but this is what I remember him saying, is um, their, their culture is really promulgated through work. Like that's, that's a very big key to how they go from generation to generation. They have a, actually a theology around work that becomes part of who they are and their identity. And, and likewise, the Jewish people, the Hasidic Jews, their culture is sustained because of stories. From generation to generation, they have in, within the Torah, they have stories that identify who they are and keep them right, right, where, they, right, you know, right where they want to be, right where they are, that, that, uh, that are the, what do I want to say, like the plumb line of their identity in God are the stories of the Old Testament. And today, when we read the Psalms, that's one of the reasons I want to read it, is because these stories in the Old Testament aren't just... Um, for the people um, you know, in the sixth century BC, but they're actually yours in their mind. The Lord gave them to us to help identify and bring an identity into our own heart. And so there's great value in reading um, the Old Testament for many reasons, but one of them is the stories are supposed to speak to us. The heritage of people that lived a long time ago, their testimony of God breaking through and what God did is really our testimony today. We get to take hold of that and it becomes part of our journey as well. And so this morning, we're gonna take Psalm um, 84 piece by piece. And the first verse says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. And you'll have to bear with me because we're gonna do a little bit of like history breaking through this before we kind of get to the end, but it's hopefully gonna give us a good uh, context. Excuse me, it's a little dry. So, Moses was at Mount Sinai, right? They leave, they leave Egypt, they end up at Mount Sinai, and he actually spent 40 days, the, the Bible says, and 40 nights on the mountain with the Lord. And a lot of, the Lord downloaded a lot of things to Moses, and he uh, was given a lot of instructions. And one of the things that Moses was given was um, plans for this thing called the tabernacle. In, the, in Exodus, uh, mid-Exodus, it actually talks about it as called the tent of meeting. And what it was, was a place where God would dwell. That's what tabernacle means. It means tent or dwelling. And so Moses was given the plans that included this big curtain that kind of, you know, outlined a plot of ground. It included an altar outside. It included this, this basin to wash your hands in. It included the, the, uh, holy, um, the holy place, and it's like an inner court. And then within that, even like a holy of holies. And, 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 and that, that tabernacle became the place of God's dwelling among, among his people. And the Bible talks about if we sin that um, payment is made, needs to be made in blood. And so within that structure is where the ancient Jewish people would actually sacrifice and do their sacrifices for atonement, for their sin and for different things, was within that place. That was their place of worship. And so when it says, how lovely is your tabernacle, um, it, could, it could be a couple things. It could have meant the later temple, um, but it says tabernacle, so that's what I'm going with. In the, Moses' time, the sons of Korah would have been part of that whole structure of how that tabernacle ran. And so I think about like, what if these people were actually either, you know, under the Babylonian captivity, not able to worship like they wanted, or maybe it was, you know, afterward and the tabernacles got a bunch of stuff and they're trying to, they're just remembering those, those, those uh, times with God. How lovely is your tabernacle? 
Um, at, at the tabernacle, the priest would sacrifice to atone for the people's sin. This was the place where the presence of God was on earth. We know that God is everywhere. He's what we call omnipresent, but there's also places where he shows up, and it sounds silly, but he manifests himself in a special way. And within this tabernacle, within the that Holy of Holies, the Bible says there was actually a cloud that would rest over the Holy of Holies in broad daylight for everybody to see above the tabernacle. And people know God was at home. God was there because his cloud rested there. And in fact, um, when his cloud moved, the people moved. And we'll kind of get onto that in a little bit. But the tabernacle was the place, the dwelling of God. The Hebrew word, like I mentioned, means dwelling. And it says, O Lord of hosts, it says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. That's a a title for like a warrior god. It's signifying that God leads something. He leads a, an army. Um, the tabernacle was a picture of Jesus and a foreshadow of him as Messiah. Right? In the book of John, it actually says this. It says, we're now in the New Testament. It says, and the word, speaking of Jesus, he's called the word, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We looked upon his glory, the glory of the one and the only from the Father, full of grace and truth. When this psalm was written, the only place you could worship God appropriately was at the tabernacle because that was the place of God. And in the New Testament, what did Jesus say? He's like, you're no longer going to you know, worship me at the temple. He says, but true worshipers are going to worship me in spirit and in truth because now we, the church of God, become become the house, the building, the tent, the dwelling, the tabernacle of the Lord. Jesus, when he, as he lives in believers, we carry his presence with us. And so we no longer have to go to a tabernacle. We can worship God wherever we are. The Bible actually says where two or more are gathered, that he's actually in our midst. And so you could be at a Dairy Queen having a cup of ice cream and deciding that you're going to worship the Lord and he's in your midst. And how many times has that actually happened? You're having a cup of coffee with somebody at Panera all of, the, all of a sudden, the conversation turns to the things of the Lord, and you recognize that the Lord's in your midst. You ever been there? I've been there. And that's, that's a key difference. Is we, we think of the fact that worship was place-centric, like you could only worship God at the tabernacle. And to some degree, it was. But it was place-centric because it's person-centric. That is where, at the tabernacle, that the, the Lord actually manifested himself. And today, he manifests himself in his church, in his people. And so this is a really interesting thing when we think about that. How lovely is your tabernacle, um, your place of dwelling? Verse 2 says, My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out. Um, I think this is kind of a, a, a really interesting piece because we get that. We like to, um, we make everything spiritual, right? It's like, oh, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. It sounds very spiritual. Well, if you take this apart. It's really an interesting verse because my soul longs. We get that. Like our mind, our will, and our emotion can long for something, right? You have a, um, your loved one and they're on a big business trip and they're across the world for a month and you've been without them. Your soul, your heart that longs for them, right? David says this, my heart and my flesh cry out for you, cry out for the living God. What I don't think we have a great paradigm for it is what does that mean? My flesh cries out for God. One side of that is this. I, I said in the first service, there's, um, I come from a rather large Italian family that our entire calendar, I think I've mentioned this before, is basically revolves around food. And so different side, times of the year, we have different things that we make. And at Christmas time, Christmas, Easter, weddings and funerals, those four times, we make these things called pizzales, which I was told this morning I said wrong. I don't know. I don't think so. But they're waffle cookies that are pressed in an iron and they, they are flavored like anise. 
and um, growing up, every Christmas we had them. In fact, the scent of them in the house, because they smelled like black licorice, reminded me that the holidays were near, that Christmas was coming. If you've never had a pizzail, you would never crave them, right? If you've never had a juicy steak, you'd never be like, I need to go to the steakhouse and have a good steak. If you've never, you know, enjoyed something like that, you, you can't crave something you've never experienced. And yet, uh, the writer of this psalm says, my heart and my flesh cry out for you. I think what he's saying is he says, I remember the days that I would meet with God. I remember those times in your presence at your tabernacle where I would literally have an encounter with you and I'm crying out for that again. And what's interesting is his flesh cries out. So I, 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 I'd like to propose this, that historically speaking within the church at the charismatic Pentecostal community, those that believe in the fullness of the Holy Spirit like we do, don't have a really good track record with, with respecting the mind because we like to say, well, sometimes your mind gets you in the way of believing God. Well, the mind was actually created by God. He says, when, when you renew your mind, when you cause your mind to be in line with my word, you actually prove the will of God. You're, you get in position to prove, that, think about that, to prove the will of God when you think like God thinks. Jesus has given a couple loaves and a, and a little fish. In the midst of 4,000 people, I think that's counted without women and children, if I remember correctly, something like that, and he was given this small meal, and he looked at that and said, oh, that's enough. He broke it, and God multiplied it, and he fed everybody. The renewed mind looks at something like that and says, oh, that's, God can do that. That's enough. That's not a problem at all, right? There's a boat. He, his, his followers are out in the, in the sea, and, and um, he needs to get to them. It's not a problem because a renewed mind for him, he's like, God can make a way, and his way was he walked right on the water. The renewed mind looks at impossibilities as divine opportunities. They look at things that are impossible in the natural, and they say, oh, that'll bow its knee to Jesus' name. They always do. So our minds, I know we've we, historically, not, 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 maybe not us, but historically we've put down our minds. Our mind is created by God as a tool for the kingdom. And likewise, our, what that scripture says, our, my flesh cries out, so is our bodies. You know, your body was created to be an actual temple of the Holy Spirit, that we as a church become the temple the, of the living God, that we are supposed to be filled with his presence. It actually says in Hebrews that, um, that the mature train their senses, my, you know, it's like a sight, sound, train their senses to discern between good and evil. There's something about how we interact with the physical world that the Lord wants us as Christian believers filled with the Holy Spirit to be aware of him at all times. And that's through our flesh, which is really an interesting thing. So he says, my heart and my flesh cry out for you. Here's a guy who maybe is in captivity, maybe away and not had an opportunity to worship in, in many years, and he's crying out, craving again the things of God. I think that's kind of interesting. Verse 3 says, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Um, I think what we see here is a guy who remembers maybe being around the tabernacle and noticing that even the birds make their nest in the place of God's presence. Why? Because all of creation is meant to be home in the presence of God. All of creation. We find our home, we find our purpose, we find our safety in the arms of a loving father. And the psalmist looks and says, even the sparrows, even the, even the swallows, those crazy birds that just flitter everywhere, they find their peace, safety, and tranquility in the, in the place of God's presence. And he's probably longing, that's where his heart's crying, I said, I wish I could go back there. I wish I could find my place again in his tabernacle. 
this morning. Maybe you came here or you tuned in and you feel far from God. And you've, you've never known what it means to, to find your home in the Father's arms. Well, I say today's your day. The Lord would say to you that Daddy's not angry. You can come home. Amen? amen? I'm glad you said amen. If you, I was going to come down and amen myself because that's a good word. Daddy's not angry. You can come home. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. This is verse 4. They are still praising you. With longing, the writer remembers how blessed they were to dwell with God. So interestingly enough, the tabernacle was set up among the people of Israel so that this, it was like a rectangle, I think, or a square, but this rectangle tent thing um, was set up in all of Israel, camped by their tribes around it. So you had three tribes on one side, three on another. You know, it was all around the tabernacle. And what I think that the prophetic picture is, is that God has always wanted to be among his people. At Christmas time, we sing the songs and we talk about how God is Emmanuel, that means God with us. It's not that he changed and decided he wanted to be with us. He's always been a God that wanted to be with us. And he literally set up how the, the Israelites lived to be a prophetic picture of what was to come. That I'm, I'm with you now in, in, this, in this building and structure, but I'm gonna, there's going to be a day where I'm literally in you and among you, filling you with the Spirit of God. And I think that's really a, a, a wild picture. He says, blessed are those who dwell in your house. In the New Testament, do you know what the house of God is? It's, it's not a building, it's a people, right? We can worship God in the middle of a field and we are the house of God, wherever we are, as a people. And what's really interesting is it's a people in the plural. I know uh, through offense and whatnot we've been talking a lot about lately that uh, some people find it a little easier to worship God by themselves. And that's good. God can meet you at your house, in your living room, in your car. God can meet you one-on-one, -on -one, but we are created not just for community for our own benefit, but we were created to be the house of God. Each of us is like a stone, the scripture says, and we're fit together in a proper place as God's building, as his house. And we may not be able to see that as God's building. And all we see is this guy's got a a scratchy, rocky nub over here that I don't like, and, and this one's falling apart over here, and I don't like how I'm being built. And God says, no, no, just wait it out. I'm, I'm building you. I'm putting you where you need to go. I'm strengthening you. Once, as the wall gets built, we all get strong. We all gain strength as we stick, it to, stick in it together. And so I would just encourage us, as we all, and I'm sure we all have, I know I have, we have moments where you're like, I think it would just be easier if I was just a hermit in the woods and talked to nobody. And sometimes it would be. But it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be what God wants for us because the house of God is supposed to be his dwelling on this earth. And I don't know about you, but you, you walk throughout, I look throughout society today and I see a bunch of hurting people. I see a bunch of broken people that honestly want the things of the Lord but don't know how to find him, don't know where he's at. They're looking for a people that are filled with the presence of God and the love of the Father to tell them, Daddy's not angry, you can come home. And it's time to come home. Um, the New Testament, I mentioned, doesn't know anything of a Christians who don't gather. We're consistently encouraged and commanded to live continually with our brothers and sisters. I didn't do this. I forgot to do this in first service. I want to share with you a scripture. Um, give me just a second. 2.19. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, 
So now you Gentiles, that's Gentiles are the non-Jewish believers. That's, I'm not Jewish, so it's, it's us if, that, if you're not Jewish. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. This is Ephesians. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the cornerstone of that house is Jesus Christ himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you're also being made part of this dwelling, there's that tabernacle idea, where God lives by his spirit. That's in Ephesians. So this is a New Testament uh, idea as well. It's not just a, an Old Testament thing that, that, that God's dwelling, God's house is really important. Verse five, it says, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. So this, I said we'd come back to it. The tabernacle had the, um, oh, those curtains on the outside and it had all the furniture and the, the holy of holies and the, everything. It had a big structure. It was all actually built to be um, quite portable because when the cloud moved, cloud of God's presence. The Israelites would wake up, I don't know how it went, I'm just imagining, they'd wake up uh, some mornings and that cloud would have moved a bit. And they'd say, you know what guys, it's time to pack up. We're going to take all this down, pack up all of our housing, and we're going to follow the cloud. And so for quite a while, um, 40 years I think it was or whatever, they, they wandered through the desert following the cloud of God's presence. In this scripture here, it says in verse 5, blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. I think that's a prophetic picture of what the believer is supposed to do. We're supposed to continually be looking for what God's doing. The scripture said as Jesus walked around and he healed the sick and he, he um, did all of that stuff, it said he only did what he saw the Father doing, which might sound a little bit, well, what did he see? Did he see visions? Did he have a dream? Did God come down and point at somebody? Well, no, I think it's what that Hebrew verse says. It says that his, your senses are trained to distinguish good from evil, to understand what's happening. You, you look at somebody. I, when I was a youth pastor, I had a bunch of kids. We'd, we'd worship together. We had like 20 kids or 30 kids. And um, one of the things I loved to do, we'd worship together, and the kids would just come before the Lord, and then I'd have them sit down in a circle, and I would very awkwardly wait. And I would just look in, each other's, in their eyes, and I, until I found the one that I felt like the Lord said, that's the one I'm working on. And I would go over and we'd minister to them. And sure enough, if I, if I, if I saw what the Father was doing and I ministered to that person um, that the Lord was working on, everybody in that whole group would get touched. Do you know that? If we, if we prioritize what the Spirit's doing in the moment, and that might mean I have to like, you know, disrupt my schedule, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna love the person God gave me in the moment, even if it's a disruption. Many times, disruptions are divine opportunities. We find that, that God's in the midst of that. If we follow him, we follow the cloud of his presence like in the tabernacle. And in, in, in years later, when the tabernacle actually was no more and there's now a temple in Jerusalem, there's a, a physical stationary big temple that was built. Three times a year, all the Israelites had to go to Jerusalem to worship at the festivals, to celebrate God at the festivals. And that's another picture of pilgrimage. Our heart is to be trained to go forward following God, to be with the family of God and celebrate together. And I think, you know, Jesus mentioned it this way. I think he said, he said um, the, the, the spirit-filled believer is kind of like the wind. You can't tell where it was and you can't tell where it's going. And that, that is the pilgrimage of our heart to be alive with God, being ready just to follow him wherever he goes. So, um, verse 6. 
This, this is the part we don't really know. It says, as they pass through the valley of Baca. I don't think, I couldn't find anything that actually gave us any indication of what the heck that was. They make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Um, obviously, Baca seems like a dry place because it's highlighting the, the strength of, of pools and water and the idea that, like, you know, uh, when God jumps into a thing, he turns it from death to life. And at the end, it's really interesting, it says each one appears before God. It's, it's again speaking about the idea of God physically, personally being in front of his people. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, what happens in verse 8 is really interesting. Up until here, first seven verses, we're talking a lot about God um, and about his own passion for the things of God. And, but in verse 8 through 10, he, the cry that he talks about, that craving, that passion, begins to get loosed. And it's like you ever sit at um, like a Panera Bread. I might have mentioned this before. And you talk about the things of the Lord. And after a while, you've got to stop talking about the things of the Lord and you just got to start talking to the Lord. It's like, oh, can we just have a moment of prayer? Because all of a sudden you recognize God is in your midst. Um, those things are really real. And this happens to the psalmist. In Jewish poetry, many times, um, I was told that the high point of the poem can be in the center of the poem instead of just at the end. And I wonder if that's what this was. He's talking about craving the things of God, and then all of a sudden his heart bursts forth, and he can no longer just talk about God. He just has an overflow of crying out to God. And he says this, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah, O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I think he's just pouring out, saying, God, hear my prayer. You hear how much I want your presence again. Lord, make it happen. I'd rather be a doorman in the place where you are. I'd rather sweep in the hallway and be the, pick up the garbage than, than have a great, lush place to live anywhere else. You ever been there? You ever been there? You ever been hungry enough? You said, God, I'll do anything. Here's, you, you can take, Lord, here's, here's the, the job description. I'm going to give you a blank page. I'll sign my name at the bottom, and you fill in the job description later, because that's how hungry I am for your presence. I feel like that's what he was. He's like, I'll do anything for you, God. And then in verse 11, he says, the Lord God is a sun and shield. It's kind of weird wording. The only place in scripture I believe that he's called a son. Son, without the son, there's no life. Think about that for a moment. And he's our shield, he's, our, he's, a, he's a source of life and he's our protector. That's who the Lord God is. The Lord will give grace and glory, which is really interesting to the New Testament church because our journey as believers is all about grace and glory. It starts with grace and here's what I mean by that. You come to Jesus and you say, God, I, I don't have anything to give you but I know my life is broken. I've been living for myself and sinful. And it's time for me to change. And I'm asking you to take this, this guy and make him new. And the grace of God comes in. He forgives you, the Bible says, of your sin. And you get to start a new life. That's grace, right? That's the grace of God. The grace of God isn't meant to give us a license to sin. It actually is the, the very power of God to not sin, to walk in rightness before God. And then the glory part is the end of our story. When this whole thing wraps up, the Bible says that we, with Christ, end up in glory. And so this verse talks about the beginning and the end of the believer's walk with Jesus, the Lord who gives both grace and glory. And I think that's really powerful today. And no good thing will he withhold from them who walks uprightly. None of us can be made right by doing our own thing. We can't through any amount of religious 
trappings or fasting or praying or reading our Bibles. Uh, we don't buy God's approval. We don't end up at the end of our days and the Lord says, all right, I'm going to look and see if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Oh, that was a real bad one, but you made it for, for over here. No, the book of Romans says no matter what we do, the best things we do are like filthy rags to God. So on my best day, I still fall short. I think I have some good days. But in the scheme of things and what the, in the, how the Lord views us, he says, no, 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 your best acts of righteousness are, are yet filthy rags. And, and yet we're called in this verse to walk uprightly. And, and for us as believers in Jesus, we need to recognize that Jesus came as the Lamb of God. And it's really important in Psalm 84 because the Lamb was important to the tabernacle. That's where atonement took place, that the people of God would come and say, we sinned. Well, they would offer sacrifices. They would actually kill animals, and their blood would atone for the sin of the people. The Bible says without, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So he offered to the Jewish people, it's either your own blood or it's his animals. And they said, we'll take the animal. And they took the lambs and the goats and the turtle doves and the things that they actually would sacrifice. They would go into this tabernacle, offer them to God as an offering in, in their place, and the shed blood would atone for the sin. And that's, that's the picture when Jesus says that he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He said, what I'm going to do is we're going to be done with all these animals going into the tabernacle. And once and for all, the perfect Lamb, the one who never sinned, is going to make a payment for you. And that one payment, that one, that one sacrifice will be good enough for all eternity. And the scripture says it this way, that the one who knew no sin, never sinned, became sin for you and for me that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me say it a different way. Jesus got what we deserve so that we could get what he deserves. And it's all by faith, right? It's all by faith, all by, hey, I'm gonna come and believe that what you did was for me. Think about that. It says, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. We come to Jesus in faith, and we say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Uh, I've lived away from you long enough, and I need your help. And he doesn't make bad people good. He makes dead people live. That's the real truth. And uh, I told the story in the first service. I'll tell it again, because I think it's helpful. Um, I spent, when I was, uh, it was before my high school, so it was right before my freshman year. Um, I had spent a number of years as a very good um, uh, Catholic boy. And the Catholic Church had a very impactful upbringing in my life. I know some people have different thoughts and stuff. They were very, there was a lot of positive things from the Catholic Church that helped me along, but I, because of my own brokenness and my own journey, I was trying to make a way for God to like me. And so I did everything. I got awards, and I was, when I met my wife, I was going to be a Capuchin monk, and all this weird stuff, which is not weird, it's fine, but, it, but I was doing it for the wrong purpose. And in 1993, I went uh, with our youth group, and I went to um, see the Pope uh, John Paul II at the time, I was a huge fan of this guy. My, I actually had his poster in my room, which is super weird for a high school student. Um, feel free to laugh if you want. Um, <laughs> well, when I went there, um, to this day, I still remember when this Polish man, he was, he was Polish, in English, read this scripture. And what he was reading was when Jesus turned to Peter. And a lot of people had, 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 had left. And, and basically, Jesus was like, well, what about you? What are you going to do? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And when that Polish man said those words, something inside of me clicked. I'd heard it all my life. I'd been around church. I had tried to do a good thing, but something inside of me clicked when that scripture came alive. And I realized that was true. And if that was true, that he really was the son of God, then that meant everything changes from this moment forward. And for me, I spent the remainder of that trip walking around Denver, Colorado. That's where it was. And I I told my youth group leader later after we got back, I said, it felt like I was walking with this person of love. If love was a person, I was walking with them. And I didn't, it, it, it upended everything in my life. And she laughed. And she's like, well, that's biblical. I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, Jesus literally is the person of love. And when you come in and, you, and you, you believe on him with all your heart, you come and you confess your sins and you say, God, I need what you have, he literally comes and makes his home in you. He tabernacles with you. And I had the experience of that long before I had the theology of it. And this morning, if you're in a place where you say, I've never had that or I'm far from God, I want to say this is your day this morning. Is that all right? So why don't you do this? Why don't you stand with me? And I think that this, we're just going to kind of close out service. Uh, let me give you a high. We're going to close out service with um, just a moment of prayer, communion, and then we're going to just sing and we'll kind of be done. But um, I think that this is so important that if you will bear with me, I actually want to read what I wrote because I don't want to mess it up. Is that all right? All right. This morning, maybe you've lived your life and never asked the Lord to forgive you, or maybe you've tried to come to God another way. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through him. It's unfortunate, maybe, but he's very exclusive. Jesus is the door, and today I believe that the Lord Jesus is inviting you and me in. And I believe that there's people within the sound of my voice who cannot fathom what it means to live without guilt and shame. And I want to say to you, that can end today. Guilt guilt comes on us when we do wrong, and we know it, and that's a good thing. Shame comes on us when... Some, we're told you are wrong. And God says, no, no, you're not wrong. I made you in my image. And, and the way that we get rid of that guilt and that shame is we come to Jesus, we recognize I've fallen short, God, I've sinned. And Lord God, I want and ask that you would forgive me. And he says he's faithful. His blood has been shed for you like that lamb. I believe there's even some Christians that call them, people that call themselves Christians um, who live without a care. They're not caring about walking for Jesus. You don't walk uprightly before the Lord, but I want to say to you this morning, if you're a Christian living in sin, don't play around with it because it's a fire, and it will burn you. Amen? It's like playing with fire. It's time to put that stuff behind us, repent, get our life right with God. So we're going to come to Jesus this morning, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will take away your sin as he does mine. And I even believe specifically to some online people at home this morning that I'm talking to you. And if that's you, I'm not going to invite anybody down. I'm going to invite us to actually just pray in our seats. Um, so if, that's, if, if, if that speaks to you, you're, pray with me in a moment. If you say, hey, you know what? I've come to Jesus. He's forgiven my sin. I know that this morning I'm right with God. I am right with God. Then you, I want you to celebrate by praying for everybody else in this auditorium. Is that all right? Do some praying with me this morning. So you can pray this in your own words. We're just going to pray. Father, I come to you this morning. I've been far from you long enough and I want to come home. I know that I've sinned against you, and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Some of you have carried in your heart stuff that you've done, guilts and shames for so long. I want you just to take a brief moment between you and the Lord and recognize that. Confession just means to agree with God. God, this morning, 
I know there's something I've done 20 years ago. I've carried with me for 20 years and I know it was wrong and it's killing me. So would you just forgive me? I ask you to cleanse me, to make me clean in your sight and make me right. Tear down the wall of separation between us. If what this preacher man says is true, I ask that you would come and live with me today. Dwell with me from this day forward because Jesus, I know that you're the only way and I choose to live for you. Do you know the scripture says that within that tabernacle, there was this one veil or a curtain, very thick, it was called, the, it separated the holy place from the uh, holy of holies that only the priest could go in once the high priest once a year is a, the holiest of places in fact if you went in in the wrong way you would die the priest would go in with a bell on the on the bottom of their robe because if the bell stopped ringing and they had a rope on their ankle if the bell stopped ringing they would pull his body out because he went in in an unworthy manner and the lord killed him and that's and what jesus did when he died and he rose from the dead actually when that happened at that time in jerusalem the bible says that that veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. God reached down and he said, we're gonna take away this veil and break it. And he ripped it and said, no more. You have full access to me. I'm your dad if you come through Jesus. Isn't that good news?